Well, good morning again. My name is Brad Cheney. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here at All Saints. We're in Ezra chapter 6, verses 13 through 22. Uh, that's the passage on which the sermon is based. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert to begin the sermon. Uh, I'm going to spoil the ending of Friday Night Lights, the television sh- show. So fair warning if you haven't seen it but you still want to see it. Uh, I don't feel too terribly guilty because it's been around for like 15 years. But So if you're unfamiliar with the scene, small town, Texas, high school football coach, Eric Taylor and his wife Tammy... Uh, the, the marriage is a key component in the storyline. Everything in their marriage re- revolves around his job and the ups and downs of the football team in a, a football-crazed small town. Um, and as, as the wife, this really begins to wear on her, understandably. Well, you fast forward to the very last episode, uh, season five, the, the very end. Tammy has been offered a new job in Philadelphia, and the two of them are having to answer the question, do, do we move for her? Because we've been doing everything for him throughout our entire married life, do we move for her? It, it's a great opportunity, but it means that he'll have to leave the football team and, and the dynasty that he's built behind. Very last episode, they have made it to the state championship game. Uh, there are two seconds or so left on the clock. Uh, they, they are, uh, the score is tied. They are uh, on the final play. Like, this is it. The quarterback drops back. He, you know, he throws the, the desperation pass up into the air. The camera you know, focuses in on the, the football as it's flying and flying and, and flying through the air. And it lands in the arms of a receiver on a practice field in Philadelphia. Which is really kind of a, a brilliant touch by the director, isn't it? Because what he did there in that moment is he, he connected the, st- the narrative arc, and he, just in that very subtle kind of way, he, he ties it all together. And there you are in the practice field, you see all of the different um, characters in their new roles and, and their new jobs on the sidelines, doing, you know, doing their new lives together. I think it's a very nice touch by the director. Uh, but secondly, it leaves you wondering, what happened? <laughs> you know, did Luke catch Vince's pass? What happened on the last play? And for a while, you, ha- you don't know. You, you, you're the, the viewer, you're just waiting to, to find out until you see at the very end a shot of the banner proclaiming East Dillon Lions 2010 Texas State Champs as the banner is being taken down along with the scoreboard on which it hung. Um, a very subtle way of communicating that they had won. Now, this probably will sound a little strange, but what I'm going to try and do here at the beginning of the sermon is make the case that that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in this passage of all things, in Ezra chapter 6. The, the continuity of the narrative arc, but uh, the, the waiting for the big splash. Ezra 6. Seventeen or so years have passed since the foundation of the temple has been laid. The construction project, as we have seen the last couple of weeks, came to a grinding halt. The people begin rebuilding under the uh, guidance, under the urging, really, of Zechariah the prophet and Haggai the prophet. And when they start the re- rebuilding project, the regional governor, Tatanai, and his associate, uh, Shatnar 
Bozani come to the people and say, who gave you the authorization to build this? What are the names? Give us the names of the men who are working on the project, which is a very ominous kind of question. Then Tatanai sends a letter to the Persian king Darius and says, O king, basically these Jews have said that their project, their construction project had already been authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia, before. Will you make a search of the royal archives to determine if that's the case? And the king's reply, you know, how is this for reversal? He says, yes, we found the edict. Do not hinder them, but use some of the tax revenue in that, in that region and give it to the Jews so they can finish rebuilding the temple, which is, you know, pretty cool how God orchestrated that. And then we arrive on verse 13. Because of the decree of King Darius that he had sent, Tadnai, governor of the Trans-Euphrates, and Shednar Bozani and their associates carried it out with uh, diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and, and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple according to the command of God, the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of the house, for the dedication of the house of God, they offered a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred male lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. That too is a really nice touch. We know that essentially only three tribes came back: uh, Judah, Benjamin. And Levi, yet the twelve is representative of you know God's faithfulness to all of Israel, as, as that's what they're trying to communicate. And uh, verse eighteen, they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. And on the fourteenth day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and the Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek Yahweh, the God of Israel. For seven days, too, they celebrated with joy the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Syria. So he assisted them in the work on the house of the God of God, the, the God of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we simply confess that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. And so we pray, uh, you know, sincerely by the power of your Holy Spirit, to feed us with this bread that we have just read. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. You can't understand Ezra 6 without knowing something about 1 Kings chapter 8, an extremely important passage and really one of the high points of the Old Testament. At 1 Kings 8 is Solomon's dedication. It includes the entire dedication ceremony of the very first temple. These, you know, the, the old temple, the new temple, they stand in continuity with each other and yet Something is definitely missing here. Something has been lost. 
For instance, we just read the sacrificial totals for this dedication ceremony. They were 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, which sounds like a lot of animals to us. But at the dedication ceremony for the first temple, Solomon dedicated, slaughtered 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep. I mean, utterly mind-boggling numbers, just the, the, the size and the scope of the offering that was given. I mean, significant difference that the people would have picked up on. You may also recall that the first temple, I mean, the inside of it was, it was like gold-plated. It was just covered in gold. It was, you know, the, the woodwork was all done by the, the greatest artisans of their day. I mean, it was, it was like the Taj Mahal of, of buildings. A few chapters earlier in Ezra, when the foundations of this temple are being laid, there are a lot of people who celebrate. The majority of them, there's a great cry of, of gladness. But then, if you recall, there was another loud sound of wailing, <laughs> of crying, as people who saw the previous temple compared it to this one. There's something missing. The number of animals, the size and splendor of the building, those are all significant dis- differences. But what is the absolutely key piece that is missing in this temple dedication ceremony that was in the previous one. Anybody? No. <laughs> uh, the, the glory cloud. The cloud of glory. Uh, the cloud that you know, descends upon the temple like the cloud, the pillar of fire that had led Israel out through the exodus at the end of Solomon's beautiful, beautiful prayer in 1 Kings 8. This magnificent glow of radiance is so great that the priests can't even enter into the temple and fulfill their duties because the cloud of glory comes down. So here's a, here, this is what's important. While it's clear that God does accept this temple, he was with his people at this new temple. Uh, it inaugurates an entire new epoch in Israel's history called Second Temple Judaism. This is the temple that King Herod then later builds on and makes it much, much nicer. This is a le- like totally legitimate temple. But like, where is the championship banner? <laughs> where is the glory? And you have to wait a few pages. Did you catch me there? I said a few pages. In our ordering of the, the Christian ordering of the Old Testament books of the Bible, you know, Ezra is basically in the middle of your Old Testament. Not so in the Jewish ordering of the Bible. In the Jewish ordering of the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah is right, it's, it's the second to last book. It's right at the end of their Bible. It's like the last few pages until you turn the page. We want them to turn the page to Matthew and to the date, March the 29th, 33 AD, Palm Sunday, as Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem uh, and enters into the temple. And just like Friday Night Lights, the biblical director, uh, he makes you wait for the display of glory. And indeed, it is a very subtle display of glory, isn't it? It's, it's a man on the back of a donkey. It, it's a ragtag bunch of people singing hosannas. It is the fulfillment of Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle on a donkey. (laughs) Very subtle. And if you remember, what does Jesus do when he enters into the temple? He purifies it. He 
turns over the tables of the money lenders and runs off the sacrificial animals. The reason that I'm starting out the sermon in this way, and usually I probably don't start them like this, but I, I just want to illustrate to you how you can read your Old Testament with eyes looking for Jesus. That's something that should be extremely important to us. We should always be looking for vestiges of Christ in the Old Testament. And I, I tell you, like, this is supposed to be a signpost to the reader. Like, every single Jewish reader who would read this would be like, where is the glory cloud? Where, where, why has it not come? Where is it? And the answer is, you, you have to turn a couple pages until you see the glory coming in. I mean, I'd even press it this far. Why even a cloud of glory? Doesn't it seem to you, it seems to me, that the reason you have a cloud is in some way to mute the glory. It's in some way to filter the glory. I mean, if like, we were to see the glory with our eyes, it would burn out our eye sockets. We can't, we can't handle it, and so the cloud is there almost filtering it and making it bearable for the people who see it. And, and you know, what happens with Jesus? His glory is filtered through his humanity so that we can see it. And that's what, come, that's what enters into this very same temple uh, about 550 years later, but only a few pages uh, later. Very good stuff. At least I think that's good stuff. Let's change gears and look at the passage I printed on the front of your bulletin. If you'll flip there with me. Psalm 90 is a community lament that is attributed to, the, to Moses, but it sounds exactly like something the exiles would have sung in Babylon. We are consumed, I'm starting in verse 7, we are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our inequities, inequity, iniqu, sorry, iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All the day, our days pass away under your wrath. We... We finish our years with a moan. Um, Our days may come to 70 years. There's that number again. 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and we fly away. I mean, the exiles recognize that they were undone by their decades of unrepentant community sin. Decades. Um, If only we knew the power of your anger back then. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. So teach us now to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And he continues, relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Ezra 6 is that all all coming full circle. It's God finally showing compassion to them. It's God finally making them glad and making his favor rest on them. And most importantly, finally establishing the work of our hands in the construction of, um, of the temple. There are about 67 lament psalms in the Psalter. That means that out of the 150, that's 
Look at my math here. 45% of the Psalter are songs of either individual or community or national lament. This week I was reading an otherwise good book on the topic of suffering. And yet when I did a word search in it, I was shocked to find that there was one sentence, only one sentence on lament. A Christian book on suffering, one sentence on on lament. It just goes to show you that however we have been taught as Christians to deal with pain and suffering, most likely lament has been uh, way underemphasized in that teaching. You know, we really haven't been taught to do this. I was also listening to a podcast this week where Ted Tripp on the Gospel Coalition had a great and helpful discussion on the topics of discouragement and complaint and the distinction between complaint and lament. I want to share some of that with you, uh, and I'll tie it back into Psalm 90. In complaint, when you and I complain, uh, I've already judged God as not good, and I've already begun to look around myself and envy somebody else, usually. I've already begun to say, how does a good God give me this trouble when he's blessing this other person over here? Uh, Complaint does not move us towards hope. Complaint brings God into the court of my judgment, and I question his goodness and faithfulness and love, which like always is spiritually discouraging. Tripp continues, there will be moments when life seems impossibly hard. There will be moments when God confuses you. Um, I know that some Christians are, are very uncomfortable saying that God ever is angry with a Christian. They would ma- maintain that because Jesus bore the wrath of our sins on the cross, you know, God never gets angry with us. I, I don't know that that's true, actually. Um, Israel certainly wasn't afraid to confess that God was angry with her. And that's discouraging. There will be moments when, when discouragement sets in at, so deeply, like cement inside your soul, and it becomes the lens through which you see all of life. And when that happens, we tend to complain a lot. Tripp says that chronically discouraged people, those whom discouragement has become a lens of life, find more things wrong than right. They tend to see more darkness than light, more trouble than mercy, more injustice than justice, more hate than love, and more rejection than acceptance. Although they're convinced that they're seeing life accurately, discouragement has actually distorted their perspective And their assumptions about life have caused them to see one thing more than the other. It's kind of like when you buy a new car. Let's say you buy a Volkswagen. Suddenly it seems that there are uh, are more VWs on the street than ever before. You you say to your spouse, honey, when we bought this car, I had no idea how popular VWs were. But in reality, there are more VWs on the car. It's just that your eyes are focusing on them. And so it is with discouragement. It, It quickly lends itself and becomes a lens, uh, it lends itself to becoming a lens on life. It predisposes you to see more brokenness than blessing and gives you ample reason for complaints. And it won't be long if that complaint will become your default language. Lament is just the opposite. Lament is bringing your dire needs to God In order to lament, you're already, in some sense, preaching to yourself that there is a God, that God exists, that he is present, that he hears, and that he can help. I mean, why else would you cry out and lament if you didn't believe that he could actually help? (laughs) And when you're crying out, what you find, you actually build hope in your heart. 
That is the pattern we see in all of the psalms. So many of the darkest lament psalms, they begin in the darkness and they end up being the most hopeful words uh, of all the Bible. Lament Lament reminds me that God would not leave me in this broken world by myself. Lament reminds me that he never turns a deaf ear to the cries of his people. Lament reminds me, not only does he have the power to help, he has the willingness to help. So when we are in moments of emotional pain and we wonder, does anybody care? Will anybody understand? God is inviting us to bring those groans to him. The Bible, I love what he says here. The Bible never asks us to deny our emotions. It never asks us to buck it up and put a saccharine smile and act like everything's okay. It asks us to bring our pain to Jesus, the faithful, sympathetic, and understanding high priest who is able to be touched by our infirmity, who's never disgusted by our emotional state because he, he understands the full range of emotions that we go through. And lament is truly the Bible's way for this to happen. It's a great podcast. Um, it concludes... Part of the good news is that hopelessness, if you're in a state of hopelessness, that can be the doorway to hope. Like when you, you start, when you stop hoping in your money, when you quit hoping and to turn your spouse into whatever you want them to be, when you quit hoping in your job or in your physical health, it is right there when your heart is open to reaching out for true hope, a hope that will not disappoint, a hope that is found entirely in Jesus Christ. Amen? It's true. And as I said, I really think Psalm 90 is, uh, is giving us, the movement from Psalm 90 to Ezra 6 gives us the great encouragement that God will never turn a deaf ear to the cries of his people. Amen. I'm not done. I got one more point. I just need a water. I just need water. Finally, let's talk about... The Passover in this passage, kind of important, and it's in the sermon title, so you can't skip over that, right? Uh, the construction of the temple was completed at the end of the last month of the, of the year, the month of Adar, and Passover is always celebrated at the first month of the new year, 14 days into the first month of the new year. So they went back to back, and I want you to think for a moment how meaningful this Passover would have been to them. This was the first Passover that they had celebrated in basically a century. This was the first Passover they had celebrated since their city was destroyed, their loved ones were killed, their mothers were raped. This this is the first Passover that they have had um, forever. Now, if you're new to the Bible and you're wondering, what is Passover? Passover, it began on the night, the night before God led Israel out of Egypt Yahweh told them to select a young spotless lamb and prepare it to be eaten. Then they were to take the blood of the lamb and paint it on the door frames of their house so that when the angel of the death came through, uh, the very final of the plagues, the angel would pass over their firstborn sons and they would be spared. So the annual Passover feast commemorated the key moment in Israel's story when two things happened. Number one, when God brings justice on human evil— because that's what he was doing against Pharaoh and Egypt. And also when God shows mercy to his people by providing them a substitute. 
That's all what they're looking back to um, on this day. But fast forward to the night of April the 2nd, 33 AD, in the upper room when Jesus is sitting at the center of the table like the patriarch of a Jewish family celebrating the meal. Uh, They are about three quarters of the way, I would guess, through the Passover liturgy. So they've gone through several of the different dishes. They've done all the recitations that were part of the evening Passover um, standard, you know, liturgy. And they come to the moment, the point where they pass the the matzah, the bread. And Jesus, as the patriarch, uh, is supposed to say, this is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate when they came from the land of Egypt. And instead he says, this is my body. And they had, I mean, they had to just be like, what does that mean? I mean, the weirdest stares are going (laughs) at him. This is my body. Then during the third cup of wine, there were four in the celebration. During the time when he's supposed to say, this is the cup of redemption through which God redeemed us from Egypt. Instead, he says, this is the cup of my blood, which we've talked before. That is so scandalous. So scandalous to Jewish ears. For people who are not even allowed to eat blood in their meat. For people for whom blood is forbidden because blood is, represents the life of the animal and it's exclusively reserved for God. And they're looking at him again like, what is he doing? What is he doing? He is taking the central event of Israel's story and reinterpreting it through the cross. And he says, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant There he's using language from Exodus chapter 24 when Moses took the blood of the sacrifice. He sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that I have made with you. And that blood, not only did it it purify them of their sins, but just like in a, a wedding covenant, when you put a ring on the finger to say, This means death do us part. The blood of that covenant, it ratified the relationship. It was a promise that God would rescue them from the enslaving powers of evil and make them his forever. And then what I I think I love the most is Jesus, in essence, he's reversing the language of the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, thou shalt not eat. And Jesus says, take and eat. So you might say, you might say, especially if you're a preacher trying to connect your opening illustration to the conclusion, you might say that the past was thrown in Ezra 6 and it comes down in the fullness here on Maundy Thursday and Good Friday. In conclusion, Ezra knows that the people cannot go back to the former glory days of David and Solomon. But now that they are back in the land and back at the temple, they can seek to build a better future, the future when Messiah will come and all of God's promises will be a reality for God's people. Amen.